Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. This is Eric Marcus, and I have some very sad news to share. Kay Lehusen, one of the towering figures of the LGBTQ civil rights movement, died yesterday, May 26th, 2021. She was 91 years old. Kay was a journalist who captured key moments of the 1960s and 70s movement on film and along with her life partner, Barbara Giddings, helped change the course of our history. Over two visits in the spring and winter of 1989, I interviewed Barbara and Kay for five hours in their cozy living room in Philadelphia. And over the years, Kay became a dear friend and mentor to me. Barbara first found her way into the movement in the mid-1950s, and Kay found Barbara in 1961. Together, they devoted most of their lives to the cause. Making Gay History listeners met Kay and Barbara for the first time in the fall of 2016, in our debut season. I wanted to share that interview with you again, to hear Barbara and Kay finishing each other's sentences, a pair of happy warriors, which is exactly how I choose to remember them both. Interview with Barbara Giddings and Kay Tobin Lahusen, Wednesday, May 17, 1989, at the home of Barbara and Kay in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Interviewer is Eric Marcus, tape one, side one. Kay? Kay? Yeah, what? I need some coffee. I'm, I'm making right now. And the fruit we should get out that's oh, on the front porch. I just want to ask you about, uh, I'll save America. Bring you some little blue bowls. I'll save Americans for gay rights, Ah, yes. Bring out the fruit bowl from the, and there are a couple of knives I had out. Take care of your whistling. It never fails. I'm a musical person. I want a whistling kettle. I get a shrieking kettle. <laughs> we have a harmonic kettle. You do? What yes. does it do? It's, uh, it, it Westminster has, chimes? It's frightening. It's, it's off key. <laughs> when did the two of you first meet? 1961. Mm -hmm. At a picnic in mm -hmm. uh, Rhode Island. Uh, whose purpose was to pull together some women to try to start a Daughters of Belitis chapter in uh, the New England area. Do you remember what you felt the first time you saw Barbara? The first time I saw her 
No, I thought she was a very interesting person. <laughs> <laughs> I was quite taken with her. And you? And I was taken with her. <laughs> I happened to answer the door when uh, she rang the bell for this uh, picnic, and I was very taken because this was not at all what I had expected. She expected some mousy little old lady, I think, to turn up when I turned up. Because I knew that she worked for the Christian Science Monitor. And my stereotypes were such that I expected this rather mousy, door type of person. And she was everything, anything but when she turned up at the door. You know, bright, cheerful colors and uh, red hair and uh, just awfully attractive. And we started talking and jabbering away. And, and this was, uh, you were coming from where at that time? You were... Well, I lived in Boston. I wrote to all of the women on DOB's mailing list who were within a hundred mile radius of uh, Rhode Island and invited them to try to start a chapter up there. That was a fortuitous invitation. Yes, very much so. <laughs> Brought her into my life. Well, in those days, Eric, you have to realize that there were like, you know, five people who might have been <laughs> possible for the Rhode Island chapter. I mean, it was nothing. It was just. A I think we had all of, of all of twelve or fifteen people at this picnic, and that was a big <laughs> turnout, really? a really big turnout in those was days. Was it that many? It seemed. I think it was about that. What kinds of people came to the picnic? Well, we were certainly a motley crew in those were days. Were married, married women? Came, or? Married women, possible. Nobody stands out in my memory mm -hmm. from that uh, particular Marge time. Marge and her hopeless love for Jan. Jan didn't <laughs> reciprocate. And then an, an older woman who wasn't with anyone, but she told Barbara to go after me. I was a cute little package. Which <laughs> 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 really I, ticked me off. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's been a standing joke with us ever since. <laughs> but I, frankly, Eric, in the beginning days of the movement, I'll tell you, the people who turned up were by and large pretty oddball. <laughs> you what know. Is that? Because in the early movement, it was so such an unpopular right. thing to do, when most gay people were trying to blend in and pass. You were saying you had to be a little. Yes, you had to be a little bit mm. unconventional, mm. to be willing to come out to to meetings of a group like that. And you had to have some reason to want a crusade, in spite of whatever it might cost you. But you started in what? What got me started in the movement was. I found in 1953 or so a book called The Homosexual in America, A Subjective yes. Approach by Donald Webster Corey. Yes. His book was very much a call to arms. He was saying that we ought to be working to, to gain our equality and our, and our civil rights. So I met him and found out from him that there were organizations of homosexual people. Was that a stunning revelation? Yes, yes, I didn't realize that there were such groups. We're using the term of the day, homosexual. Not gay. Right. Gay didn't come until the late 60s. Was lesbian we used... used at the time? Mm -hmm. Yes, but not as much. Well, it was Hom in the statement of purpose of DOB. Lesbian. The variant. Oh, the variant. That was the variant. A... They didn't call her lesbian at all. They called her the variant. <laughs> never. Oh, yeah. Never. I forgot that. The <laughs> so, but anyway, I found out from Corey about the existence um, of an organization called One Incorporated in Los Angeles. Lo and behold, the next uh, vacation that I had, I arranged to take a plane out to uh, Los Angeles. And they told me about the Mattachine Society in San Francisco. So I hopped another plane and went up to San Francisco 
and uh, talked to them, and they told me about the Daughters of Belitis, which had formed a year ago and was about to uh, start a magazine. And it was founded by... Uh, eight women, including Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon. I did accept an invitation to come to a meeting, and then I found myself in a living room in a normal social setting with 12 other lesbians, and it was a marvelous experience. And I just sat there sort of reveling in the company. Uh, it's, it wasn't a bar setting. These were nice women, and it made a big difference. But I didn't actually join Daughters of Belitis until two years later in 1958. So 58, you decided what made you I was invited by Dell and Phyllis in San Francisco to help start a New York chapter. I guess they had sized me up as someone who'd be willing to take the, uh, take the bid and run a little. Uh, how many women in, in the New York chapter when you started out? Official members, you might have had 10. In all of New York City? <laughs> Official members, yes, but a lot more turned up for the, the social events, the, uh, what, the 30, public lectures. If we were lucky. That was a lot. That for, was a lot. That was a lot for an invisible people at a time when you could hardly poke your nose out. Daughters of Belitis didn't have big public lectures. Mattachine did. But we, but we, we members of Daughters of Belitis would go. And sometimes we would co-sponsor. Mm -hmm. So we'd sort of hitch with Mattachine's big, greater strength to, to get our name onto something. And it was usually a lecture on the law and changing the law. Or, or on changing homosexuality. Or it was some <laughs> psychotherapist. Yeah, some shrink. Yeah, some shrink looking for uh, for clients or uh, uh, to cure, usually. Or or a gay therapist who wasn't out, and who just got up and gave an academic paper on. Uh, or there were there were. Fritz, what did he always used to talk about? Monkeys and things, you know, homosexuality <laughs> and animals or something. Uh, <laughs> these lectures were really excuses to at get which, together. Yes, to get together and to, and to let people uh, come out a little bit. The content of the lecture really didn't matter that much. We really needed the recognition that we got from these people who were names in law and ministry and the mental health profession. They had a credential and they were willing to, to come and address a meeting of ours instead of ignoring us entirely. That was important. So just by coming? Just by coming and recognizing our existence and, and our being a legitimate audience, that gave us a boost. Most gay people <clears throat> in New York who had any kind of income were going to the therapist. What did the therapist tell them at this time? Usually trying to cure them. Fix them? Mm-hmm. You she see, I decided at 18 I was right and the world was wrong. <laughs> but uh, the people who were in New York were in that uh, intellectual uh, stew pot there, and the going theory at the time was that uh, you were sick and you should go to the doctor and get turned around, uh, deep analysis, find out what went wrong in your childhood, and so forth. Not too many people just... Uh, you know, thought for themselves and thought, you know, this is a crock of shit. <laughs> but uh, anyway, we'd have these events, and then Daughters of Belitis had uh, its own socials and what were called Gab and Java sessions, literally talk and coffee, and there was a topic uh, for discussion in the e that evening. Topics like uh, telling your parents, uh, going to the therapist, <laughs> Uh, legal legal issues, legal problems, whatever was the going... Should lesbians uh, wear skirts? Oh, yeah. Uh, acceptance by the world at large. Problems. Well, there was, that was a big thing, yeah. yeah. But uh, Gus would tell endlessly about her therapist and what her therapist said. <laughs> Therapy was just Very big. the overriding thing then. I mean, law reform was secondary in politics, you know. 
And yet I was, obviously I was beginning to feel my crusading oats a little bit. I couldn't help it. And yet I didn't have a very clear sense of what we were doing and why we were doing it. I sort of, we sort of bumbled along, but where we were going, if you'd asked me, I probably wouldn't have been able to say very clearly. Well, Kay was, Kay was a big help because Kay's got a very, very clear mind and some very definite ideas about the world. Well, much the more. the Mattachine guys pushed things along. After all, they did a sit-in in a bar and demanded to be served. This was the sip-in that I've interviewed a couple of people on this event. And that was watch. very important. Well, and we're moving along, but and this Randy coincided... Randy Wicker was the first to pick it. He got out and picked it. Yes, the, he picketed at Whitehall Induction oh. Center in 1962 or 1963. And yes, and this, this is beginning to filter through to me, that, that you could do things like but that. But I think even before the, you know, the, the real activism, Barbara and I were unhappy with the daughters of Belitis... Um, posture and it was a kind of a scolding teacher attitude it was now you lesbians had better put on a skirt and shape up and hold a job and go to work 9 a.m. to 5 (laughs) and And make yourselves acceptable to the world and then you can expect something of the world in return and then you know it was the you know the scolding the laggard lesbian right and we didn't that somehow right. it really didn't sit well with us it was pointed toward the uh, ne'er do wells who would loll around in the gay bar all day long and um, and we didn't know as any if of those. as if this was the majority the, of us the most of us whereas the most of us really were in skirts already fitting in all too tightly right with, <laughs> with very painfully wearing the mask I know I did at the monitor. I was in a skirt every day, fitting in all too tightly. We didn't like it. <laughs> we thought it was very demeaning, and we thought it was very inappropriate. And it seemed to me that at every national convention of Daughters of Belitis, Kay and I would come up with radical proposals right. that were always voted right. down. We, did, we didn't want the name. We wanted the name we wanted of the membership changed. for men. We wanted associate memberships for men. We wanted to change the name of the magazine. See, we wanted to change the, the composition of the national board. The was called The Ladder because you were supposed to climb up the ladder. Did you ever see the covers and of the first few And into the human issues? race on an okay basis. It's very badly drawn. The, the first six issues or so had this picture, uh, a ladder, literally, from some kind <laughs> of a... Uh, no, muddy, muddy marshland <laughs> with some vaguely humanoid figures down there, and this ladder up into the clouds and the sky. And it was really oh, this little lesbian is beginning to climb the ladder, <laughs> upgrading herself so that she will become an think, okay person instead of a, a variant who has a poor self-image. I think who doesn't go to work nine to right. five, who doesn't hold a regular job, who isn't a participating member of society, as if there weren't. Thousands of lesbians who were already fitting know, in all too well. Great contributors to society. No and what recognition they needed, of them. Right. What they needed was support, uh, uh, help to get the bigots off their backs, right. and ways to meet other lesbians. They didn't need the the uh, the, the, t- the teaching. They didn't right. need to be taught. They really didn't need to have to learn that much right, about the themselves. But education of the variant was one of the big things in Daughters of Belitis. Well, we were sort of itching under all of this. And yet we stuck with Daughters of Belitis for several years, especially because DOB was then joining with several other gay groups uh, in the East to form what was called ECHO, East Coast 
homophile organizations. The word homophile was very big in the late 50s and the early 60s. Homosexual was deemed too clinical, and so they tried to conjure up this word. Mm -hmm. Homophile was the word they came up with. It was, also, it was also supposed to mean that you could be heterosexual and support the organization and belong to it. it the was, theory was you could make up your own <laughs> word, but it never did sail. Anyway, we met Frank Hameny at one of the ECHO conferences. In the early 60s. Early 60s. He was fantastic. He'd been discharged. He was an astronomer and physicist. Did you read my chapter on him? I mean, <laughs> yes. he is so eccentric. You'll have to forgive a lot. I've met him. But he's worth it. But he was, he was a big influence on me because he had such a clear and compelling vision of what the movement should be doing. And it just... That was that we should be standing up and demanding our full equality and our full rights and the hell with the sickness issue. They put the label on us. They, they're the ones that, that need to justify it. Let them do their justification. We're not going so to help the them. The burden of proof is on them. In the absence of uh, valid evidence to the contrary, homosexuality is not a what is no kind impairment, of right, blah, blah. malfunction, disorder of any kind. It is fully on par with heterosexuality and fully the equal of it. And when he put that forward as a... Uh, credo. Yes, a credo for the movement in 1964, it was the most radical thing that had come down the pipe. And DOB said, no, we can't take a position on it. DOB was one of the groups that wouldn't go along they with said, it. They said, nobody will listen to us. We have to get the professionals to say we're okay. We so can't we say we had it better ourselves. help them with their research studies and all of that. And once the professionals say we're okay, then we'll then the world will accept it. And Frank said, this is rubbish. He said, if we stand up and say, we're right, and nobody listens, we will not have lost anything. But if somebody listens, we even will have it, gained Even if it's something. only one gay person who needs a and little reinforcement. Uh, even if it's only the gay people who listen, we will still have gained something. So anyway, <laughs> what happened we was, had, we, I were, we were, editing. were catapulted into this we were vigorous intellectual back and forth, we, where DOB was back in the mire, of wanting to upgrade the variant. And we were saying, to hell with this, there's nothing wrong with the variant, it's society. That's right, that was the shift that Frank helped uh, put into focus for us. Well, uh, he packaged it. Well, he, and he, yes, he did, and he marketed it. That is, he really pushed for its acceptance by the ECHO affiliate organizations <laughs> at these ECHO meetings. Right. And of course, this was a very uneasy alliance because DOB wasn't ready to go along with all this stuff. Well, that's- And for it, one thing, it was the intellectual East versus San Francisco, <laughs> where they had nice coffee clutches and all that, right? And Florence said, uh, Florence yes, this isn't the kind of subject matter that can be marketed like toothpaste. And he said, and oh, Frank yes, it said, can. unfortunately, this can be marketed like toothpaste. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, well, poor D.O.B., they had never been grabbed by the short hairs and shaken up this way in their lives, these San Francisco ladies. But what happened was we were editing the latter around that time. Well, Barbara was the editor. I was the nominal editor. Worked. Actually, we both worked on it. Uh, the latter. And Eric, we would go out and would distribute it ourselves. We would go to newsstands. We had... And to bookstores. Only two places in New York would mm -hmm. take it. We tried distributors. They wouldn't touch and it. This was a labor of love. You've got to realize you're talking to two fanatics here. <laughs> I mean, we spent our own gas money and our own everything to do this. I mean, we were living on a shoestring. I mean, we are like, you know, the little old lady in tennis shoes. To use a sexist phrase, lady. We have a little old lady in tennis shoes here locally who's outside our supermarket handing out her socialist literature all the time. 
that's us in the gay movement, you know what I mean? <laughs> We're all ladies in tennis shoes, living on a shoestring, totally fanatics, well, uh, caught up in a cause. You're caught up in it, and, and it, there, there's tremendous uh, reward. Sure, there are setbacks, but there's a satisfaction in, in seeing the accomplishment and seeing the progress forward. Um, for every setback, we've made three major uh, strides forward. Wouldn't have it any other way. I can't imagine not being gay. What would life have been like? Dull? Dismal? <laughs> decrepit? <laughs> well, Barbara likes to say she's, she's a, um, she loves organizations, and she would have joined the conservation cause or oh, save the wilderness or save the whales sure. or something. But the gay but, movement is so much <clears throat> more fun. I've had such a good time. <laughs> If it sounds like Barbara and Kay's work on the latter was just the warm-up phase of their activism, well, that's because it was. By 1965, they were out on the picket line at the White House and the Pentagon with Frank Kameny for some of the first public protests by gay people. And even those historic protests were just a prelude to what Barbara and Kay did after the Stonewall Uprising. You can hear what they did next in the second episode we produced featuring Kay and Barbara. You can hear that next chapter in Season 2, Episode 8, and we'll link to it in the episode notes. We also had the chance to visit Kay more recently, at the retirement community where she spent the final years of her life. We called that episode Kay's Gay Table because of the monthly gay dinner table that she hosted there. Sarah Birmingham, Making Gay History's founding editor and producer, and I invited ourselves along and recorded a very special bonus episode. It's one of my all-time favorites. You'll find a link to that episode in the notes today, too. I'm so grateful to both Barbara and Kay for making possible the life I live today. And I'm so grateful for the support and encouragement Kay offered every time I called to speak with her. But ever the journalist digging for fresh information, her first words with every conversation were, What have you got for me? We passed that question on to you, our Making Gay History listeners, and dozens of you sent in your news for Kay in letters and emails that I shared with her. I'm going to miss that. We're going to miss you terribly, Kay, but we will never forget you. Kay's remains will be placed along with Barbara's in a bench at the Congressional Cemetery in Washington, D.C. The inscription reads, Gay Pioneers who spoke truth to power, and then in all caps, GAY IS GOOD. I'm Eric Marcus. This is Making Gay History. So long, until next time.